So about 10 years ago, a woman named Anne Lamont published this book called Grace Eventually, More Thoughts on Her Spiritual Journey. And Anne Lamont is a recovering alcoholic, which means that she understands that addictions go deeper than the substances themselves. And at one point in her book, she she describes going on a food binge. I'm going to read this to you. This is what she writes. She says, all I could think to do was what every addict thinks of doing, just to kill the pain. I don't smoke or drink anymore. I'm too worried to gamble. I'm too guilty to shoplift. And I've always hated clothes shopping. So what choice did that leave? I could go on a strict diet, or conversely, I could stuff myself to the rafters with fats, sugars, and carcinogens. Ding, ding, we have a winner. So I got in the car, and I headed to Safeway for an apple fritter. A perfect fritter in the classic tradition, a frisbee-sized patty of deep-fried dough, crisp and crunchy around the edges, doughy in the center, covered with a sugar glaze. I used to eat fritters in mass quantities back when I binged and purged. Then, in early sobriety, I'd snack on them sometimes because your body craves a replacement for all the sugar you once got in alcohol. By the time the night was over, I was so lost. I could follow, or I couldn't follow the breadcrumbs back to the path of mental health because I'd eaten them all. So I ended up eating junk, off and on until bedtime. I can hardly describe how I felt when it was over, like a manatee alone in in an aquarium. It's hard to remember that you are a cherished spiritual being when you're burping up apple fritters and Cheetos. Sometimes I think that Jesus watches watches my neurotic struggles and shakes his head and grips his forehead and starts tossing back mojitos. All right, so why do I read this? It's because as humans, our relationship to food is nowhere as simple as we think it is. Um, eating itself is this profound experience, right? We take something that's outside of us, um, and it literally goes inside of us and becomes a part of us and perpetuates our ability to do this again. So in other words, food is not about food. Um, it's, it's about something else going on inside of us. And that's exactly what we find when we turn to the Old Testament's description of ancient Jewish food laws. So this semester, if you've been with us, you know that we're studying the book of Leviticus together. And um, we're doing this, we hope to make sense of it together. Um, We're doing this because it is our culture's excuse, our culture's reason uh, to ignore the Bible, to throw at Christianity. And as we've looked at it so far together, we've seen that if we're able to find meaning in this book, uh, then we, we're learning that maybe we can trust all of it to direct our lives. So tonight we're going to be talking about the food laws. This comes from chapter 11 in Leviticus. It's printed for you on your canary yellow piece of paper. And I'm going to read this to us tonight um, from chapter 11, verses 1 through 8, and verses 44 through 46. This is God's word for us tonight. It's completely true when he gives it to us in love. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these, the camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof. It is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof. It is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud and does not part the hoof, it is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Skipping down to verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. 
Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming things that crawl on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight, and we pray now that you would help us as we um, study this together, that we would see it as beautiful, see how you have shaped it and crafted it, that it holds together and shows us um, something that we cannot see anywhere else. Lord, we pray that as you do this, you would lead us to see Jesus, your son, uh, as beautiful, the one um, who has freed us from the law and given us life in his name. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So tonight, um, the outline is on the back. It's really simple. What are the food laws? Why are the food laws? What can we learn from the food laws? I really created with you guys tonight for that. So what are the food laws? Um, Well, we're going to have to do some work together first to start off. Um, If you've ever read through chapter 11, you know that it's long and it's tedious. Um, This is a lot of what I'm going to be saying tonight is from... uh, a couple of pastors, Les Newsom and Kevin DeYoung. Um, and they noticed this, that one Hebrew scholar says that we're not sure what 40% of the Hebrew words in this passage mean. Uh, my Bible has a note in it that says the identity of many of these animals is uncertain. Um, so the first thing we have to understand what, what Moses is talking about here is what he's talking about when he says something is unclean and when something is clean. So clean and, unthing is not, clean and unclean are not the same things as righteous and wicked. Um, this is a different sort of classification. It's what we would call a ritual category. It describes whether what you do is appropriate or inappropriate. It's not about sinfulness and righteousness. Now, every, almost every culture in the world has these categories, right? In some cultures, it's rude for you to wear your shoes in the house. Um, in our culture, it's rude to pick your nose, which is hard to teach to a five-year-old and a two-year-old because picking your nose is so much fun. We're learning this right now in our home. Um, right? We also have examples of food for this. Right? Our food in our grocery stores has sell-by dates. It has expiration dates. Um, for many of us, we live by the five-second rule. I'm sure this is a distinctly American practice. Right? If it's on the food for less than five seconds, it's edible. Um, we have the same thing for animals. Right? We do not eat horses and dogs. That is not cool in our culture. Um, That's not the case in other cultures. Other cultures love eating horses and dogs. We don't eat insects. Um, Other cultures think it's weird that we eat pigs. People in Europe think it's crazy that we drink tap water. Um, When I was a kid, I was taught the food pyramid. And now whole cities have banned trans fat. Right? We are fundamentalists about very strange things. Aren't we? Right? So the point of this is that all of us, every culture, we all follow food laws to some extent or another. So in Leviticus 11, what we have is this early ancient Near Eastern taxonomy. It's it's an animal classification. And the animals were broken up according to how they move and how they eat in each three of the three major spheres of the world. So first we've got the land animals. This is what I read for us. This is from verses 3 to 8. And the land animals, um, in order to eat them, they must have a cloven hoof and they must must chew the cud. The cud is like the grass. And there's no exceptions. Um, the dead carcasses of these animals were off limits. The water animals, which is verses 9 through 12, to eat them, they had to have fins and scales. So no shellfish, no sharks. 
And then the air animals, verses 13 through 23. Here, you weren't allowed to eat birds of prey or swarming insects, um, except for locusts and grasshoppers. They were kosher, literally kosher. Um, this was not, that was a joke. This is the kosher laws. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, this was God's description of what was appropriate to do and not appropriate to do. So why the food laws? Um, well, you can't read through this chapter without asking, what in the world does this mean? Why would God take up a whole chapter of the Bible talking about this kind of stuff? Um, and there have been a lot of attempts in history to answer this question. And there's some really bad answers out there, and then there are also some better answers. So we're going to start with the bad answers. So first, one of the first bad answers is the hygienic answer. This is saying that animals are classified as impure because they can cause disease when, it, when eaten. So, right, if you eat undercooked pork, you can get trichinosis. Um, and so some people think that this is like the maker's diet. If you eat this particular diet, you're going to live longer and feel good, but very few scholars take this view. This can't all be tied to health. Um, ancient people knew how to cook their food, and many of the pure animals are equally dangerous if not cooked properly. And also, in the New Testament, um, all of these animals are allowed to be eaten. And yet there's no evidence that cooking techniques have improved over time. So if health were God's concern, he wouldn't have changed the food laws. The second bad explanation is the cultic explanation. And this is cultic meaning the worship explanation. So animals, this was saying that animals were declared impure because they were used for pagan worship um, and represented pagan gods. Now, this is probably true in some instances, but it fails to be a comprehensive explanation. For the simple reason that cattle, sheep, and goats were pure, or they're clean in Israel, even though they were commonly used as sacrificial animals by their pagan neighbors. Another bad answer is that some say that this, this taxonomy is completely arbitrary, that God is simply pulling things out of the air. Um, but this doesn't fit with God's orderliness and his care. So I think there are some better answers that start to get us thinking about why God would spend this much time thinking about food. And one of the most compelling answers that i found comes from a man named James Jordan. And this is what he said. He says that the primary feature of clean animals is their feet in one sense or another. The thing which, which distinguishes the clean from the unclean is how they interact with the earth or the water. So to understand this, we need to understand the story of the Bible. Um, if you remember, the, the Bible tells the story that in the beginning, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created all things. And he created them good for his own glory. He created the earth and all that fills it. He created all the animals. And at the pinnacle of his creation, he created us, humans, male and female in his image. And the first, God, first job that God gave to Adam was to name the animals. And naming animal, animals involves analyzing them and identifying a, an appropriate label for each of them. One that depicts something of their character, especially, I assume, something of their relationship with man. So God commanded Adam to name the animals in order to teach Adam who he was and to educate him about his relationship with other created things. And after Adam finished naming the animals, the Lord gave him Eve. And so the story goes that God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and placed them there to care for and to guard this garden with one rule, right? It was a food law. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat of it, you will die. And what we know from the story is that Adam and Eve did not obey that first food law. They disobeyed. Um, they took for themselves something that God told them not to eat, and their disobedience resulted in shame. 
They knew that they were naked. It resulted in guilt. They hid from God. And it resulted in fear. When God came to them, they said, I was afraid. And in response to their sin, God cursed the earth. In Genesis 13, God says this. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And God placed the entirety of the creation, the entirety of the world under a curse in response to Adam's sin. He cursed his creation to teach us something about sin, to show us how bad we are, how deep sin runs. He put the creation under a curse. And so God gave his people things to do together to help them live into the true story of God. And one of these things was that they wear shoes. And when they visited someone's home, they ceremonially washed the cursed soil off of their feet before entering. And we see that when God met with people, as in when God met with Moses in the burning bush in the beginning of Exodus, he tells Moses what? That it's holy ground. And he tells him to take off his shoes. There is no curse where God is present. So remember, God gave animals to us to teach us something about us, to show us who we are and who he is. And so God ordered this clean, unclean taxonomy along these lines. Clean animals wear shoes. Well, unclean animals do not. And their shoes protected their feet from the uncleanness of the cursed creation. So clean animals also chew the, the cud. Um, this is traditionally represented or regarded as an image of meditating on God's word. Chewing um, and meditating are used together. Psalm 119 says this, How sweet are your words to my taste. So to be clean, an animal must both chew the cud and wear proper shoes, hooves that are split, perhaps so the animal can distinguish between the things which he comes in contact with. Fish must also wear shoes. In their case, it meant having scales. Scales are like an armor that keeps the fish from contact with the environment. And the clean fish must also have fins, enabling him to purposefully move through the water. What is this saying? What is the symbol here? It's that the man of God is symbolized by the clean fish. He doesn't drift with the tide, but he navigates his way through the world. And then the clean birds are those that are careful and particular about where they land, where they put their feet. Unclean birds will land on anything, especially rotten carcasses. So what does this show us? Well, first it shows us that death is the ultimate enemy. You'll find that as you look through these laws, that anything that was even remotely associated with death was to be excluded from Jewish ritual cleanness. God is saying that if you are going to be in my presence, your life has to teem with life. No hint of death can be found in you. Israel only ate animals that had shoes or armor or careful about their contact with dirt, decay, death, and the curse. Second, these laws underscore God's demand for perfection. Many commenters mention this book by Mary Douglas called Purity and Danger. And Douglas's explanation is that some animals were chosen over others because they reflected accepted standards of normalcy and, or anomaly. Unclean animal, animals were those that were not of the same kind. In other words, God is setting down standards that said, in general, that normal things stay within their category category and anomalies cross over boundaries. So for example, in verse 27, um, it says that paw walking animals, like a lion with a paw, um, that they're out of place. Why? Because like fish without fins, they don't have direction or purpose. If the insect hops, it's okay because it's going somewhere. Um, but if it swarms, it is, it's, it's not okay because it lacks direction. 
So God is teaching his people a lesson on purity. He's saying here, in creation you can see examples of creatures who stay consistent to their nature. And I want you to be the same. Holiness, holiness is in some ways being what I've created you to be. So later on in Leviticus, God will tell Israel not to mix crops in the growing field. Or mix different types of fabric in an article of clothing. It's the same idea that they were to be one thing. Israel was to be one thing. His people and nothing else. And these laws were a symbolic reminder that God's people were to be set apart. They lived differently than the world. They ate differently than the rest of the world. And then in verse 44, which we read together, God says this. He says, be holy as I am holy. God is rooting these strange food laws in his character. He's rooting these strange food laws in the reality that he is the God who has rescued them from slavery, bought them, and delivered them from their oppression in Egypt. God calls his people to be holy because they are his people. Full stop. The motivation for godliness is God himself. So what can we learn from them? Well, obviously, the most important feature of these laws for Christians is the fact that they, we've been told explicitly, multiple times, that we are not to follow them anymore. In Mark 7, Jesus says that it's not what goes into you that defiles you, but what comes out of you that makes you unclean. And then we have this story in Acts chapter 10 about the Apostle Peter. And Peter, we're told, is on his way to the town of Joppa. And he stops for his midday prayers, and he goes up on the roof of this house, and he gets hungry, and he wants something to eat. And so while they're preparing the food for him, he goes into a trance, and he sees the heavens open up and a giant tablecloth um, brought down from heaven by its four corners. And on this tablecloth are all types of animals and reptiles and birds. And a voice from heaven says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter responds, by no means, Lord. Right, Peter's a Jew, he's a good um, law-abiding, he says, By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. But this vision happens three times, and God says to him, What God has made clean, do not call unclean. Peter is told that all the unclean things are to be eaten. The message is clear, we are done with the food loss. But then that's weird too, right? Because why would God institute them when he knew that he was going to repeal them? Well, the answer to this question lies in what the Jews did with these laws. In fact, um, what they did with their whole ceremonial code. God said to them, I'm giving you these things to set you apart. That through the way you live together, you will be known as my people, holy unto me. But I'm setting you apart because I've already accepted you. It's not the reason I've accepted you. In other words, the food laws weren't what made you God's people. They were what distinguished you as God's people. I've used this example before, um, but I think it helps here. When Leo, my five-year-old son, does something really great, we say to him, um, Leo, we're proud of you, but um, we also say this when he does something really bad and he's been disciplined. So, Leo, when you obey daddy, do we love you more? Mommy, daddy, do we love you more? And he says no. And we say, when you disobey mommy and daddy, do we love you less? And he says no. And we say, Why? And he makes a little joke and he says, because you're my son. But what he means is he gets this, that, that he's our son and that um, his good, the things that he does that are good, he does because he's our son. And he can't earn any position with us. In the same way, if he does something disobedient, it doesn't affect the fact that he's our son. He can't ruin that. 
And over the course of time, um, God's people got this flipped. And they began to think that because they kept these overwhelming laws, they had somehow earned God's favor. And this has been happening ever since. Um, This is what the Apostle Paul deals with in Galatians. These people have used their Jewish cultural distinctives to set themselves apart and to, to establish a reason to exclude other Christians. But then Jesus comes along and he calls the Jews out by explaining that it wasn't the food you ate that separated you from God. That food was trying to get you to think about the state of your heart, that it was your heart that was bad and needed attention. And here's the point of this. At the heart of every person, there's a desire to find something, to find something that will commend you to the world outside of you, right? The desire to clean up what we know is wrong with us. And the food laws are preaching to us that you're not beautiful yet, you're not in yet, you're not acceptable yet. They were pointing these people back to God. And the answer was right there the whole time. This is verse 45, when God says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Did you hear the order in that? I am the one who saved you. Now, on the basis of that, be holy as I am holy. It can't be the other way around. Or you're going to be on a cruel journey to try to save yourself. Back to Anne Lamont. Um, By the time she gets to the Safeway, um, she finds out that they're out of fritters. And this is what she writes. She says, in the history of Safeway, it has never once run out of apple fritters. I understood instantly that God was doing for me what I could not do for myself. I did not turn to the donuts, the bear claws, the the Danish. I was not hungry for those. I had not been attacked by random lust for just any old sugar and petroleum product. But what did I do? I drove to another market. And on the way over, the voice in my head said, it's not that big a deal. Anyone would understand if you binged every so often. So I asked nicely, um, now, who exactly is anyone again? I knew this was true. Even Jesus would. Although somehow I don't see him ripping open a passage of hostess ding-dongs for me. But thinking of Jesus reminded me that food would not fill the holes or quiet the fear. Only love would. And I hate this. The point is this. Um, the food laws are, por- are part of the law. And in the New Testament, God tells us that he gave us the law to show us our need for him to rescue us. Galatians 3.10 tells us, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. This means that if you are trying to obey your way to God, you will be crushed by his law. And for those of you who are used to accomplishing your way through life, This hurts to hear. For some of you, you have proved your worth to the world through your resume. Your life is an admissions interview. If you don't listen to the law and let it break you and send you to the cross empty-handed, you're going to end up listening to your own food laws. Here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's not what's going into your body that's defiling you, but it's what's coming out. You're being molded by your ideal body weight, you're being molded by that cursed treadmill or the dream of a six-pack, right? Or you count calories, eating the pit, and then burned on the elliptical machine. Or you're counting your calories on Friday night and purging them on Saturday morning. For some of you, you are being crushed by your own food loss. Some of you will achieve your fitness goals. Some of you will achieve your food loss. And when you do, you will find them twice as empty in their attainment. Why is this? It's because you're looking to food and its regulation for satisfaction. 
You're looking to satiate your hunger by feeding or starving yourself on the food of this world. And into our disordered, our disordered, disordered world that is filled with our disordered hearts and our disordered appetites, Jesus becomes the thing that we eat. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, whoever feeds on me and drinks my blood has eternal life. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Jesus is saying that the only thing that will free you from your food laws that enslave you, he is the only thing that will free you. He alone has broken the curse. He is the only food that will reorder your eating disorder. Jesus speaks to you. He says to you, come to me. Come to me and find rest. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the food law by becoming a curse for us. On the cross, Jesus was crushed by the law so that you might be freed from it. He has cleansed the world once and for all. So hear the voice of Jesus who calls to you, who says, come to me. You who are tired of the curse of your own food laws, come to me and find rest. Eat and drink deeply, for his burden is easy and light, and in him you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have fulfilled the law and um, have ended it. Lord, that we are free. We are free uh, from this heavy regulation. Um, Lord, we thank you that freedom is found in you. Would you help us um, to find our freedom in you, to eat of you and drink of you deeply um, at the Lord's table and to know that you feed us because you love us. We pray this in your name. Amen. You want to stand where you sing one more song.